Good evening. Uh, I have to apologize to you. I discovered when I got here that this timer hadn't been working all afternoon. How did you know when to walk and sit? It was working. Oh, was it working? Oh, okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad. <laughs> because uh, it, it was on uh, pause mode when I came here. So, all right. I'm glad that it was working. That's very good news. All right. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, is everyone here? I think maybe one person missing? Four, five, six. So what I like, uh, I'm going to chant the uh, homage to the Buddha in Pali, and uh, if you're comfortable with doing so, please uh, join me. We'll repeat it three times, and after which we will chant the three refuges also in Pali. And the same thing, please join me if you feel comfortable doing so. After that, we're going to do the ten precepts, and for the first five, I will recite them first in Pali, and then in English. Okay? And for the last five, they're only in English. So please join me then. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Buddham Saranga Chami Dhamam Saranga Chami completes the going for the three references. Panyati Pada Virami Sikapadam Samadhi Ami I undertake the precept to refrain from harming or destroying living beings. 
Adinadana Brahmani Sikakadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given me. Kamesu Michachara Viramini Sikapidam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musa Vada Viramini Sikapidam Samadhyami and take the precept to refrain from our speech. Sura Maria Maja Padatana Varamani Sikapidam Samadhi Ami. And take the precept to refrain from toxicants. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to act with loving kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the Eightfold Path through daily study, meditation, and reflection. With these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. This completes the ten precepts. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill May all beings be filled with love and kindness. May all beings make themselves truly happy. Thank you very much and good evening. I hope you had a good afternoon of practice. So, um, does anyone have any questions about the about the refuges and the precepts that we just did? Yes? I'm more familiar with just five precepts. What, what is the, um, how, how do we get to ten? The first five here are the, uh, the same as the traditional five precepts. Uh, they, the, the five by themselves are the uh, uh, five lifetime precepts of a lay practitioner. Uh, there are Eight precepts and ten precepts, which are uh, eight, eight precepts which are taken by uh, lay persons on certain circumstances, like uh, an day observations. Uh, let's say uh, uh, at every quarter of the moon, uh, a gathering to meditate and hear the Dharma. And there are ten precepts that are taken uh, by. Uh, 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 novices when they go for ordination 
as a bhikkhu and that are kept in addition to 223 other ones by ordained bhikkhus. Um, this, the uh, traditional uh, latter pre, the, the first five of all these sets of precepts are identical and they're the same as we saw here. The latter three and the latter five uh, in their traditional form involve uh, their precepts uh, uh, to avoid uh, uh, eating at forbidden times and uh, wearing garlands and perfumes and things like this and sitting and sleeping on high beds. Uh, And for the ten precepts, one of those is divided into two and then is added to it not to uh, accept gold or silver. Uh, A a bhikkhu is not supposed to possess money or wealth of any kind. As we are lay people, that precept's not appropriate. And the other traditional precepts that make up the three or four of the eight or ten, um, I don't see as having terribly great relevance in our modern times to lay people. The refraining from attending uh, entertainments and uh, eating at the wrong times and uh, wearing perfumes and jewelries and garden garlands and, and so forth. My, my preceptor and my teacher uh, thought that it made more sense to initiate some uh, slightly different precepts that are completely in keeping with the teaching of the Buddha and the advice of Buddha to lay people. And so that's what the second set of five is for. So these are, these are the ten precepts of a dedicated lay practitioner or upasaka that you've just repeated here and that I ask you to keep during the uh, retreat. But I think it would be, uh, I'd strongly encourage you to consider trying to live by uh, the entire set of ten precepts and going beyond the traditional first five. What did you think of those precepts? I'm just trying to remember them all. Uh, but they're they're somewhat familiar, mm-hmm. and I, I wonder what what is the um, the origin of this particular organization of, of the ten precepts. I understand that they all come from a long time ago, but was it your teacher who came up with this list of ten? Uh, the, the the second five of these uh, basically uh, came from my teacher. I reworded them myself. So that's, that's what their origin is. Any other questions about the, the precepts and the uh, uh, refuges? Is everyone familiar with the refuges and what they mean, their significance? Yeah? yeah. I think I'm familiar, but I wouldn't mind a, a refresher because I think it's probably more complicated than I think it is. So I think that's a very good idea, yeah. It's to everyone's benefit. To take refuge. What does it mean to, to take refuge? Um, you take refuge when you are uh, assailed by some sort of, of uh, difficulty. That's what it means. I mean, even, 
you're caught in a rainstorm, you take refuge under uh, an umbrella or a, or a cover. So, to to seek refuge indicates that you have a recognition that uh, you are are in some sort of a difficult situation that you need that you need some kind of refuge from. And to the, the traditionally the taking of the three refuge is refuges is the formal way that a person becomes a Buddhist. And to to be a Buddhist you have to have recognized the need for some kind of refuge. You have to have come to the conclusion that uh, life as it is normally lived is dissatisfactory and to have a, uh, a wish and a hope that there is that something better is possible. Um, and that is I, th- I think fairly obvious although it's clear that many people in the world don't recognize that the situation is such. But those that do, who see that the, the constant struggle that makes up our life and the dissatisfaction that permeates every aspect of it, uh, the frustration, the, the pain, and the inevitability of sickness, old age, and death, the, uh, how how much effort we expend over and over again to obtain some happiness uh, and to uh, avoid pain and suffering, and yet how often the results of that effort are disappointing. And even even when they are achieved, they are transitory. They don't last, and you're back doing the same thing again. Uh, so it's the recognition that that uh, life life as we live it is dissatisfactory. It is dissatisfactory, and it's coming from a place of hope that we would take refuge rather than sinking into despair. So we go for refuge to the Buddha, and what that means, we're not going to refuge uh, to the person of the Buddha, because. That person uh, uh, died 2,500 years ago. But we're going to refuge to the fact of the Buddha's awakening. And the Buddha was a human being, like we are. And the Buddha achieved his awakening by his own efforts and not as a result of some divine dispensation. It is a demonstration that that same awakening, liberation, enlightenment uh, is possible for all of us. Um, What the Buddha achieved was a final and complete liberation from the dissatisfactoriness of life, the very dissatisfactoriness that causes us to take refuge. And so that's why we go for refuge to the awakening of the Buddha and we speak of it uh, as taking refuge in the Buddha. Um, We take refuge in the Buddha in the three times. As I just described, is taking refuge in the Buddha of the past. 
we also take refuge in the Buddha of the future, which is our own future Buddhahood, our own future awakening and liberation. So when we go for refuge to the, the Buddha, we're also going for refuge to our, our own future ultimate liberation. We also go for refuge to the Buddha of the present. The Buddha of the present is our own Buddha nature, which will guide us if we overcome the, uh, the defilements of uh, desire and aversion and ignorance through practice in our lives. And if we, if we get out of the way of our Buddha nature, then our Buddha nature will help lead us to uh, the real, direct, direct realization of that own nature in ourselves. So when we go for refuge to the Buddha, we are going to refuge to our own Buddha nature as well. The same thing is true of the Dhamma and the Sangha. We go for refuge to them in the three times. And when we go for refuge to the Dhamma of the past, we're going for refuge to the teaching of the Buddha that laid out in detail how any person could achieve this uh, liberation, this awakening. And that Dhamma has been passed down to us by a succession of those who have practiced it and achieved its results. We go for refuge to the Dhamma of the future because the, Dhamma, the word Dhamma also refers to the ultimate truth, the ultimate realization of that truth. And so when we go for refuge to the Dhamma of the future, we're going to refuge to our own uh, realization of that ultimate truth. And we go for refuge also to the Dhamma and the present. The Dhamma and the present is our daily uh, practice of, of virtue and of meditation and of study of the Dhamma. We go for refuge to those because they constitute the path by which we will uh, uh, reap the fruits of the refuge that we take and be freed from of that from which we take refuge. And then the Sangha. We take refuge in the Sangha of the past. And that is all of the thousands of, of uh, bhikkhus and lay people who followed the Buddha and who learned from him and who practiced his path during his lifetime. Because they are, uh, in part, our witness to the validity of the Buddha's realization and of the Buddha's teaching. And we are also part of the Sangha of the past is that continuous lineage of practitioners of uh, Buddhism who have attained their own realization as a result of the practice up to the present day. We take refuge in the Sangha of the future, which is uh, the Sangha of realized beings to which we aspire to be a member and we aspire that all sentient beings will become ultimately members of the uh, awakened Sangha. And we go for refuge to the Sangha of the present, which is both the ordained Sangha and the Sangha at large consisting of all Buddhist practitioners because they are our support, 
our encouragement, our teachers, our companions, uh, and they uh, help and support us on the path in many different ways. So that's the meaning of going for refuge. Thank you. Yes. Yes, can I ask a question? Uh, we took the ten uh, um, precept. If we've broken, how can we do? Uh, what do you do if you break a precept? Uh, uh, except for anyone, if uh, we did another purpose, but already, but like uh, the the end, I didn't see that, but I just step on. So is is, is that a broken? If you, one thing about uh, the Buddha's teaching uh, is that if you, it's your intention, intention is far more important than the action. So if you intend to cause harm, then uh, you've definitely broken the precept. Even if you fail in your intention, you've broken the precept. Even if the act doesn't is not successfully carried out. But if you do something with no intention and not realizing you're doing it, like stepping on an ant by accident, then you haven't broken the precept. But also, the meaning of the precepts and how to understand them. Um, What do you do if you break a precept? You recognize it, you're aware of it, and you do your best not to break it in the future. That's, that's what you do. Um, anything else that you might do would be purely something that you uh, felt for yourself was appropriate. You know, so you might break a precept, and then you might, real, having realized it, uh, might choose to do something to make amends. If you took something that was not freely given, you could turn it, or re- return it, or replace it, or so on and so forth. Um, the process of keeping the precepts is a process of, of learning and training yourself. Uh, what you're doing is, when you uh, take a precept, then you need to be mindfully aware of your behavior so that you can recognize when you might be breaking that precept, when the possibility is there that you might be breaking it. And you'll find that your mind will attempt to rationalize breaking of precepts. But the point of the precepts is to examine your actions in terms of the precepts and particularly to examine your actions in terms of motivation. If you are not certain whether a particular action is breaking a precept or not, you have to look inside yourself. You have to examine your motivations. And you have to try to discern the cause for the action, and you have to mindfully examine the consequences of the action. And this is where uh, when you do this, if you discover that the action that either you have committed or that you contemplate committing, if it is arising out of desire, then it's unwholesome. And if you had, if you were uncertain whether it was breaking a precept or not, if it's arising out of desire, it's probably breaking a precept. 
because the precepts are a tool, as all they are is a tool for perfecting ourselves, for perfecting our virtue. And an important part of perfecting is coming to understand and developing the feeling in ourselves and the knowledge and understanding in ourselves uh, of what that means. Uh, likewise, if you find that the cause of action lies in aversion or ill will or negative feelings, uh, then probably the action is uh, uh, violating a precept, the action is unwholesome, uh, and therefore even though you may, your mind may find a rationalization for it, then it's uh, probably not keeping the precept. Uh, and then you have to look at the consequences, because if you look at all of these precepts, what are they directed towards? All of these precepts uh, are directed towards not harming others, not harming yourself, and eventually leading to your own enlightenment. So, right there, any, any action that seems like it may cause harm to someone else, or it may cause harm to you in, your, in the future, and it's important that you keep yourself in mind in this, because we, we commit actions that harm ourselves in the future. We, <laughs> and that's, uh, uh, that's causing harm. So all of these precepts, false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, gossip, they all have the potential to cause harm to other beings or to ourselves. In any of them, you can understand them in that way. And also, they stand in the way of our own uh, liberation, our own enlightenment, because they, uh, the, those kinds of actions and the motivations that they arise out of are taints, they are defilements of our mind. And uh, as long as they are present, then we, we won't achieve the goal. So you also look at the results of the action that you committed or the action that you contemplate committing in terms of its effects on others and yourself and whether or not the motivations and the actions are conducive to your own liberation and then that tells you the answer. Over time, the way that you interpret the precepts will change. They're not meant to be rules that somebody else has defined and that you follow exactly. And uh, it's not the sort of thing where you get into a debate about, well, in this imaginary situation, if this was happening, that was happening, would would this or wouldn't this? It's a process in real life situations of discovering the answer for yourself. And the answer may be one thing today, but you may come up with a different answer tomorrow and, and next week and next year. As through practicing the, the precepts and practicing virtue, you, your understanding and your awareness becomes deeper. So in this way, you, you perfect your virtue and you move closer to being an enlightened being through practicing them. You're welcome. All right, well, so uh, the first Dharma talk of, uh, of the retreat, where do we begin? And uh, 
I always think it's good to begin uh, in any endeavor with a clear idea of the end towards which uh, you are working. And the end that we're working towards is awakening. Um, Not too long after his enlightenment, the Buddha was walking down the road. And walking along the same road was a Brahmin by the name of Donna. And the Brahmin, Donna, saw these footprints, and each of these footprints was a perfect thousand-spoked wheel, which he found to be fascinating, what kind of being could leave footprints in the road that had uh, that showed a thousand-spoked wheel. And so he followed these footprints, and uh, he saw the Buddha, and he was very impressed by the Buddha's very uh, calm and placid demeanor. And he said to him, Sir, um, what kind of a being are you? Are you a god? Uh, are you, uh, are you uh, uh, some kind of an angel? Are you a spirit being? Uh, he went through a list of different things, to each of which the Buddha said no. He said, are you a human being? And the Buddha said no. And then Donna said, well, sir, if you're not if you're not a god and you're not an angel and you're not a spirit and you're not a, a, a magical being and you're not uh, and you're not a human being, what are you? And the Buddha answered, uh, "I am awakened," and that's what Buddha means is uh, awakened one. So he answered, "I am Buddha." So what does that mean to be awakened? To be a normal person means, as we've already seen, to lead a life beset by suffering of many kinds, to constantly be seeking happiness and satisfaction, and never quite be fulfilled or even when we achieve the degree of fulfillment uh, that we seek of it not lasting, of expending great amounts of time and energy for the purpose of this, of being driven by desire and aversion in all of our actions. Is this not the nature of your life? That it's desire for this and desire for that and the wish to avoid this and the wish to avoid that that motivates you to all these sorts of activities. So you're filled with craving. And then as a result of our desire and aversion and craving, not only are we like uh, you know, like those hamsters in a little wheel running, 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 always trying to achieve a goal that's just always just a little bit out of reach. Or like a person on a treadmill. You know, the, no matter how fast you run, you stay in the same spot. You never quite get any further ahead. Well, it's even worse than that for an ordinary being because as we get older, we have more to lose and then we lose more and then our, 
our bodies start to noticeably break down and then all we have to look forward to eventually is death. And before then, all the people that we love are going to start dying around us. And, I mean, so it's even worse than the treadmill. At least on the treadmill, you can stay in one place. <laughs> so to be an ordinary person means to be driven by desire and aversion. And worse than that, you look at the actions that you commit, the things that you say, and the things you do, and the harm that they cause others, the suffering that they cause others. And so, uh, then here you are striving for something that you can never get, and just adding to the totality of the misery in the world through all of the inadvertent and deliberate things, both, that you do, all arising out of your desire and aversion. And seeking some kind of meaning and purpose in life. And always being beset by this sense of doubt and uh, not really being able to see what does this come to? I strive so hard to accumulate these things. I, I strive so uh, so hard and I worry about uh, my children and raise them and I have hopes for them and then what do they have to look forward to? They're just going to run on the same treadmill as me and my children's children and my children's children's children. And the question comes, what is, what is the point of this? What is the purpose of this? You know, even if you're successful in the world and you see that the things you do to make yourself successful uh, are harming the planet, are harming other people, are creating exploitation, are contributing to this whole mass of suffering. Because we can't even drive from home to this retreat without polluting the air and consuming oil. And so, so many of the things that we use have been produced by the, pe by the labor of people who enjoy not even a fraction of the comfort that we do. And so you look at this life. This is the life of an ordinary person, filled with craving and desire, driven like a slave, always working, really wishing for and wanting some meaning, some purpose for this to make sense. Why, why am I doing this? Why is life like this? And never really being able to hold on to that. What is an awakened person? An awakened person is one who is happy, who has no suffering. And their happiness and their absence of suffering has nothing to do with the circumstances they're in. They don't need to have anything in order to be happy. And their happiness cannot be taken away from them by the loss of things. They are free from craving. They are not enslaved by desire and aversion. And they are filled with an unlimited love, compassion, loving kindness for all beings. And so their life has meaning and purpose because anything that they can do to help work towards the liberation other people 
gives him uh, an, an uh, unquestionable meaning and purpose for so long as they live. So that's what it means to be awakened. And that's the ultimate goal that we would like to achieve. And we say awakened. Why do we say awakened? We say awakened because how we achieve the state of being that we just described of an awakened being, one who is is uh, blissfully happy and free from suffering and completely independent of circumstances, and whose life is filled with meaning, uh, love, compassion, and uh, meaning. This achieve uh, this awakening is achieved by. A, a, a knowledge, an enlightenment. It produces a complete shift in consciousness comparable to what happens when we wake up from a nightmare. You have a bad dream, uh, an unpleasant dream, and uh, you wake up and all of a sudden it's gone. And the things in the dream no longer bother you. So in that sense, it's called an awakening, but it's an awakening to the way things truly are, the true nature of reality. And in order for that to be the case, in order to that, for that to be possible, it means that as an ordinary person, we must be living in some sort of illusion. There must be a delusion present that is responsible for this suffering and this uh, seeming purposelessness of our existence. And if, once again, this is why we take refuge. The idea that this is an illusion that we can awake from, awaken from. And we can acquire the knowledge and understanding of the way things really are, and see the nature of illusion, and therefore be liberated. So, let's look at the at what needs to be what understanding needs to be obtained. There is the way that we normally look at reality at the world. Thank you. And then there is the way things really are. The way things appear to us, the way the world appears to us, first of all, is that it's divided into two distinct parts. The world is divided into external reality, that which is outside of our mind, the material, physical universe containing the bodies of other people, and even including our own bodies. A universe made up of 
many diverse and seemingly solid and real entities and objects of many different kinds. And they seem to exist on their own side independently of us. And the other part of the universe is that inner inner world of our own mind, of our own self, our sense of, of, of the self. So this seems to be an outer reality and then there's a self that's in the middle of this outer reality. Isn't that not how you normally experience things every day, all day long? I'm in a universe made up of all kinds of things. And then there's me. And here I am in the middle of it. And those things interact with me. Some of it's pleasant and some of it's unpleasant. But those things are, seem to be substantially real from their own side. And I feel like I'm substantially real from my side. And is that, that's how we perceive it, yeah? And Yes, we th- see things as, as being real and separate. There are all these different things, and each is separate. And they, their nature of thingness comes from that separateness, and also the fact that they seem to have a quality of, of endurance. You know, They don't have to last forever, but, but persistence. And they seem to exist from their own side, separate from us, because, you know, I put this down here and I look over there and I can't see it, I can't feel it, can't taste it, can't hear it, anything else. But I fully expect that when I turn around, it's going to be there again, right? And that convinces me that it's it's there as a separate. And that and many other things contribute to this particular way of looking at things. And then, as a part of this, our interaction with these things, you know, this water tastes good, gives me pleasure. The water caused me to feel pleasure. Other things cause me to experience pain. There's many kinds of pleasure, there's many kinds of pain. There's physical pleasure and pain, and there's mental pleasure and pain. But do you not analyze and interpret both mental and physical pleasure and pain in terms of the relationship between you and this external reality that seems to exist independently of you? Of course you do. Everybody does. That's how we live. And so what do we spend all of our time doing? Uh, We try to manipulate the external reality to get the pleasure we want. But we've already discovered that that's limited in its effectiveness. (laughs) So, So we can say that we believe in an external reality made up of relatively permanent and substantial things. We believe in a an independent and separate self who experiences those things. And we believe that the only way that we can uh, 
find happiness and escape suffering is through manipulating this external reality. And the truth that Buddha taught us, the three characteristics, is that everything is impermanent. Not just that it will only last a few years or a few weeks or a few days, but everything is constantly changing. Um, when we look closely enough, which hopefully you will, some of you may have already done, and if you haven't, you'll be able to do before this retreat's over. When you look closely enough, what you will discover is that there is no permanence at all. That all there is is change and flux. And any appearance of stability, every appearance of stability, is something projected by our minds. And it causes us to behave in certain ways. I'll just point out to you that even though you think you may not believe in permanence and you may understand impermanence, all the time you're doing things that demonstrate that you believe in uh, the permanence of things. Do you ever uh, leave the company of somebody that you love with uh, angry words having been spoken? You assume they're permanent, they're going to be there and back again. And how do you, uh, your possessions, you know, uh, you, you always expect them to be there and if they're ever not there, it's a tremendous shock and it's a pain when they're not there. So, uh, don't kid yourself, you have this delusion of relative enduringness of this world. You keep expecting it to be the same. You expect tomorrow to wake up to the same world that you lived in today. But the truth is that everything's constantly changing. Everything is constantly changing. And uh, can, you, can you just imagine all the things that could suddenly change tomorrow? And they will. Sooner or later, everything will change. You know, your Maserati, Maserati will be stolen, or your Lexus, or whatever it is. You know, uh, people will die. Everything changes. The world changes. But it goes even deeper than that. And this is something that you have to discover firsthand. It's very good to think about it and recognize it, but you have to discover it firsthand. The same thing with the sense of the self. You know, you have this idea of who you are, and it seems very real. It's but it's just a composite of ideas in your own mind. And beneath that composite of ideas, it's just a feeling. It's a feeling of being a self, of being separate, of existing independently from everything else. And this too is something that you can examine intellectually but eventually and ultimately you have to experience it firsthand. You have to discover that it's true. And the self that we attach to is really empty of any independent self-existence. And so is this world that's a projection of, uh, of our mind, uh, empty of any nature of being the way it appears to us. 
we're not denying that there is something other than your mind. I'm not saying that this is all a dream, because there is, you know, there is something that accounts for your sensations and your experiences. But when you look more closely, it's all that you ever see is the appearances generated by your mind. This is this is the totality of your experience. But you have to penetrate that and discover that and see that it's true. And you will come to the conclusion that as long as you are deceived by this appearance of a world of some kind of substantial reality, the way your mind projects it, and some kind of a separate self, the way your mind projects it, that all that you're going to find is pain and loss and suffering. And that will come clear. And so you will have a direct direct insight into these three characteristics of all uh, human experience. That everything is impermanent. That there is no self-nature, either the nature of your own self or the nature of things being the way they seem to you to be. And that as long as you cling to that as being the way things are, that you are going to continue to suffer. And that is your gateway. When you have, when you have this insight into impermanence, selflessness, and the dissatisfactory nature of the appearances of things, when these insights are very well-developed and profoundly seated in your consciousness, then you're very near to being able to see things the way that they really are. Your mind is driven by its attachment, by craving and aversion, to keep generating these illusions over and over again. When, in your practice, you purify your mind stream and you acquire these uh, insights, and you develop strong equanimity. And strong equanimity means that you are no longer uh, constantly reaching for the pleasant and constantly pushing away the unpleasant. Equanimity means that you're allowing all experience just to come and go, to come and go, without grasping onto any of it or trying to, to drive any of it away. That's what equanimity means. But when you have when you have the developed mind, when you have the insight, and when you have the equanimity, you'll come to a moment where your mind stops generating this illusion, and you'll see things the way they really are. This is something that is not easy to understand. It can never really be understood intellectually. It's not easy to provide a simple description of that even gives you a clear idea of what you're, where you're trying to, to go. The ultimate last step is a complete letting go. You get yourself to that point and then you just have to let go. That's the whole thing. The Buddha said uh, that if you understand the cessation of clinging to things, then you understand Buddhism. And if you practice the cessation of clinging to things, then you will have succeeded in fulfilling the Dharma. And when you have 
accomplish the cessation of clinging, you will experience nirvana and awakening and enlightenment. So there's the final letting go, but you prepare yourself for that. But just to give you some idea of what that goal looks like, is that as long as you divide reality into self and other, then there is the arising of craving, the experience of dissatisfaction, and then there are the commission of unwholesome acts of thought and word and uh, physical action. When the illusion of the separation of self, it's not, not the selflessness, the realization of selflessness doesn't mean the obliteration. What it is, is the obliteration of an illusion, not of reality. It's not like you become annihilated. It's not like you disappear into some sort of nothingness and cease to exist. It's that you enter into a, a different kind of reality that is without beginning, without end, is, and is uh, uh, completely devoid of suffering. That's what nirvana means, is the cessation of craving. And the cessation of craving is how we achieve nirvana. And the uh, experience of emptiness is another way of describing it. And that is the experience of going beyond the appearances. What emptiness is empty of is the appearances projected by the mind. And so uh, nirvana doesn't, doesn't mean some kind of annihilation. It means a flowering into a far more perfect state of understanding and realization. And then when you come back and you're in this world and your mind goes back to generating appearances once again, you're no longer fooled by appearances. And they no longer have the same power to generate suffering. And they also no longer have the power to incite in you the same unwholesome actions that they did in the past. And as a part of that experience of the uh, seamless one, the ultimate oneness, you recognize that every other person is you, the same, separate. There is no separateness. And so out of that naturally comes a perfect compassion and sympathetic joy that the suffering of all beings is understood fully. And also the joy and happiness of all beings is understood fully as not being separate from your own. And so there is no, no end, there is no limit to love and compassion when that realization has occurred. So that's the goal towards which we're working. Yes? I have a question. Would you please explain a little bit more uh, regarding the separateness? And I understand that doesn't matter it's uh, with other people or with uh, all the environment, the, the, the nature, we all interdependent, uh, okay? All, all will influence each other and by all the things. But still, uh, 
for the feeling come to the sense level, still feel like a uh, understand mm-hmm. interact, but still something like a separate things, but yeah. interact, interact yeah. with each other. But I think that that's still separateness. So, so would you explain uh, to us that what's how to uh, experience is no separateness? Explain how to experience it. <laughs> I don't know how to explain. I know. I just mm-hmm. feel like keeping what observant observing, and it's no doubt it's all interrelated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. But still, feel not not quite right. Still feel like a, oh, for example, you and me, we exchange mm-hmm. other things, interact. Mm-hmm. But still, you yeah. and still me. That's right. Uh huh. So how to overcome this? Well, that's that's the see that's the process. That's the practice and the method brings you to the point where you can see beyond the appearance of uh, the separateness. Keeping observing. Yeah. We yes, we we have this way of seeing, mm-hmm. and it's only through um, well, there's two things. First, you keep deepening your understanding because even though the world each of us lives in is something that's a creation of our own minds, our minds are such that. When we that 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 world has been created by the mind based on experience, cumulative experience, and when we examine that appearance of the world in our minds, we find we find the the clues are there. You can see that everything arises and passes away. You can see it very clearly, although until you penetrate really deeply which you can in meditation, the, the arising and the passing away seem to be separated by a period of, uh, of, of some degree of endurance. Right? But if you can conceive that even time is a product of our mind, in a sense, our experience of time is a limitation of our mind. And that's what you're trying to go beyond. You can see through examining the world that your mind projects that indeed everything is interconnected ultimately and not separate. Right? You can all see that. Even though it doesn't seem that way, you can examine it carefully, intellectually, and see that ultimately we all breathe the same air, that that we are not separate from from anything else. Everything is connected to everything else. Energy and matter are constantly moving around. That you are a temporary form. The the parts that compose that temporary form are just passing through even while the form seems to persist. If you look at a stream and the stream forms a whirlpool and you look at look at that whirlpool. You say to your friend, hey, come, look, look at the whirlpool. You know, the whirlpool seems like a real thing. But in any two instances, it's not the same thing. It's what makes it up. It's only a form of material that passes through. <coughs> so we can recognize this. We can recognize this nature to everything. And we can see that 
beyond the appearances that everything is interconnected and one. In terms of our perception of a separate self-nature, I can recognize that the separate sense of self that you experience and I experience, um, as far as we can we can tell, appear to be absolutely identical. That if if I were to have direct cognition of your sense of separateness, I wouldn't be able to tell it apart from my sense of separateness. I mean, if I find myself in your body and your mind, I find all kinds of things different, right? But if it was just that sense of of self, it it has no attributes other than being a, a, a sense of self. And so in this are all of the clues and the cues to this deeper reality. But you have to see it directly. You have to go beyond these these clues. Yes? From you are talking and I keep thinking, I, I think maybe you say the when we understand the inter uh, react, okay, inter uh that is mean the uh, non separateness. I think maybe now I, I the definition of separate that that maybe I maybe the question I should ask that if I understand if we know separateness, but still feel like a Maybe I should say this way. Still feel like we are different mm-hmm. existence. Yeah, I know. You yeah. know, I, I think that maybe that is what I, I mm-hmm. want to address. Mm-hmm. It's not so because when you explain, I sounds mm-hmm. like understand that it's no yeah. separate, but it seems still like a different mm-hmm. exist. As long as you exist in a human body with a human mind, you will have uh, you will have that kind of awareness. When you become fully enlightened, it will be completely transparent. Its only purpose will serve to allow you to uh, take care of the needs of your body and to decide uh, how to interact with other people and what things to say and do and things like that. But it will no longer it will no longer serve as the root for the arising of desire and aversion and leading you into suffering and unwholesome. Actions, but as long as you're in a human body with a human mind, you're going to have that uh, okay. the presence of that. Except that on those occasions when you enter into nirvana, you're going to step outside of that into uh, into the reality, into the much greater reality. Okay. okay? So- so ex- experience the different existence, it doesn't mean that uh, separateness, right? The experience of... Uh, different existence, you know, the, the different... The, yeah, the, the experience of different existences doesn't mean that it's real, just because... That still means separateness. If we, if I experience different existence, that's called also called the separate. Yes, that's right. It's see? that okay. it's that sense of, and, and see that's the thing. If we look at this, people in the world, everyone has a sense of self, and people are are concerned. They want to know is, um, we call this a soul or whatever you want to call it, and say, is this permanent? Is this going to survive after the death of my body? 
And if it does, is it going to be reborn and go through the same thing all over again in some other circumstances? Or if this self of mine, the soul, uh, lives past the body, is it going to go to some heaven or other world? There's all this. We, because because of the fear of the annihilation of the sense of self. Your mind creates a sense of self and then your mind attaches to the sense of self. And then your mind fears the loss of this self that it has such a powerful uh, attachment to and sense of. And so we see, we see our eventual death and we fear death and we seek to know, you know, is there, is there, is there some survival beyond that? And we look at the other alternative, and the only other alternative we see is that is annihilation. That when the body dies, that this sense of self that I'm so fond of, that I'm so attached to, it's annihilated, it's destroyed. And we can't see any other alternative either. That this I-ness, it, it either survives or it's destroyed. Can you see any other alternatives? There's four possible alternatives which were posed as a question to the Buddha. They said, when a Buddha dies, does he does he continue to exist? Or does he cease to exist? Or does he both continue to exist and cease to exist? Or does he neither continue to exist or cease to exist? Which seems to completely cover all the possible options. And the Buddha wouldn't even answer that question because it was the wrong question. You see, all of these views are based on the assumption that the self that the mind is attached to is real. And it's not. It's an illusion. And the wonderful thing about discovering that is when you get past the illusion, you don't lose the self, you gain the universe. Hard to understand, but the results are really—you know—you don't have to understand it. <laughs> you don't—you don't—you don't have to understand it. But the results are, when you have this experience, and you've seen it directly, then that part of your mind that is always creating this idea of the self and being attached to it knows different. I mean, where does your fear of death come from? Your mind creates a fear of death, right? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't come from anywhere else. It's just your mind creates it. It's like all of your all of your emotions. Your mind creates them. Why does your mind create them? Well, you see things and hear things, and your mind processes it, and it generates an emotion. Some things make you happy. Some make you sad. Some make you afraid. Some, you know, all of these emotions. The fear that you feel at the prospect of your death is an emotion created by your mind. Because there's one part of your mind that generates a sense of self. And it does that because that's a really good way of taking care of the body and the mind and meeting the needs and getting by in the world and, as I like to put it, keeping your laundry separate from everybody else. You know? It's a really good thing that your mind does this. The self is real, but it's only real as a mental construct. It's only real as something that the mind creates which serves a purpose and it works really well. But it doesn't have any reality beyond that. So, 
after you've had an experience of ultimate reality of nirvana, which hopefully will come soon, okay, and then you, your mind resumes its normal way of doing things. There's still the part of the mind that creates this idea of self. And so you still have experience of this is who I am, right? But there's a, a real difference. Like you, uh, if somebody doesn't give this self the respect you think it deserves, it doesn't bother you like it does anymore, right? Or if your mind makes a slip and your, uh, or your body makes a slip, uh, your mind doesn't generate the same sense of embarrassment because it doesn't believe in this self as some substantial reality that can be insulted by somebody's lack of respect or that can be embarrassed through some inadvertent thing that uh, was done by the body or the mind. And likewise, at the prospect of the cessation of the existence of the body, the mind doesn't generate the same fear. Yeah, okay, so when I die, all right, this mind is dependent upon this brain. When this brain dissolves, this mind will dissolve. And then the sense of self will dissolve. But it's not seen as the same way. It doesn't generate the same degree of fear because there is a reality beyond that. It's not the reality of a separate soul. It's not this sense of self that is actually more of a burden than a blessing. It's something much greater than that. And when it has been realized, it's much more, it, it, it liberates you from uh, the consequences of regarding a mental formation as being self. If this mental formation is self, and it's dependent on the brain and the body, and the brain and the body are going to die, I'm in trouble. Right? <laughs> so... That's the way of going. It, it's, uh, it gives the mind a completely different way of responding to exactly the same circumstances. It's liberating. And it's hard to say much more about that, but you have to follow the path to the achievement of it, to, to the direct achievement of it. And to come to that place of experiencing life in the world in a much different way. Experiencing life in the world from the perspective of an awakened one who sees actually that this, this is perfect the way it is. That this mind arising from this body at this point in time and in this place and all that flows from that is absolutely wonderful but it is only a collection of appearances it's only like one aspect or facet of a much larger reality And so, the causes of suffering are removed, and the causes of suffering are craving, dissatisfaction, is, 
Dissatisfaction is suffering. Craving is dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is craving. When craving is gone, dissatisfaction is gone, suffering is gone. While experiencing a body in this world, there will be pleasant and unpleasant experiences. But the mind will not react in the same way. The mind will not turn pain into suffering. The mind will not turn pleasure into attachment and create the circumstances for suffering. So, in the absence of suffering, there is only the bliss of perfect contentment, happiness, the highest form of happiness. Can you see? Okay. So that's the end. Now we're working on the means. The rest of it is method. It's, you know, the wisdom is the goal, and the rest of it is the method. So, a uh, fundamental part of the method is the keeping of the precepts and the uh, practicing of the six uh, perfections. And then another uh, major part of the of the path, the method, is the meditation, the cultivation of concentration and mindful awareness. And so that's what the, that's what the rest of what we do is about. And through the cultivation of mindful awareness, we uh, create the conditions for uh, uh, awakening to occur, for waking up from this projection of our mind, including this sense of a self that is trapped within a dying body. So it's the pursuit of wisdom through concentration and mindful awareness in a mind stream that has been prepared uh, through the practice of uh, the perfection of virtue and the perfection and the other of the six perfections. Just to uh, summarize all of this in a way, uh, the Eightfold Noble Path has three divisions, virtue and meditation uh, and wisdom. And so the precepts are about right speech, right action, and right livelihood. That's the virtue part of the path. And then uh, the second part of the Eightfold Path is right concentration and right mindful awareness. Now, right concentration means the full development of samatha, and in the way the Buddha described it, it's beyond samatha to the jhanas, to the absorptions. There are four meditative absorptions. And so this is what the Buddha defined as right concentration. Right mindful awareness, the Buddha defined as mindfulness of the body as it is, as an aggregate. Mindfulness of the feelings, of pleasant and unpleasant and neither pleasant nor unpleasant, as they are, as they occur. Mindfulness of the mental states, of desire, aversion and ill will, agitation, dullness, confusion, and also the higher mental states of, uh, of concentration, mindful awareness, tranquility, equanimity, joy. And the other part 
of right mindful awareness is mindfulness of reality as being mind-created, as a reality that we live in, moment to moment, day to day, is mind-created dependent upon these mental states and the arising of uh, pleasant and unpleasant and and neither pleasant nor unpleasant uh, experiences and upon the sensations arising from this body. So, right mind, that's, this is what right mindful awareness is. When we practice right concentration and right mindful awareness, it leads to wisdom. Uh, and uh, that leads us to the insights and the application of the insights. So. The uh, Also, if we look at the uh, six perfections, these are the perfection of generosity, and the perfection of virtue, perfection of patience, the perfection of effort, the perfection of meditation, and the perfection of wisdom. They're basically covering the same things as the three divisions of the Eightfold Path. But, uh, well, there's two that are added. Actually, when I talked about the Eightfold Path, I forgot to tell you about right effort. Right effort and the perfection of effort are really focus on the same thing. The two things that are added in the perfections is generosity, which is a practice that helps you to overcome desire, and then the practice of uh, patience, which helps you to overcome aversion and ill will. And, of course, the perfection of uh, meditation is the perfection of concentration and mindful awareness, and the perfection of wisdom is the understanding of selflessness, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, emptiness, and ultimately the experience of the true nature of reality that uh, liberates you from those. So So that's my Dharma talk for the evening. That's that's the uh, definition of the end towards which we are striving. Any questions? You mentioned mindfulness of the your body as an aggregate, um, as right mindful as part of right mindfulness. Yeah. Um, what what if uh, for those of us who seldom get get to be mindful of our body as an aggregate, but are able to be mindful of just parts like breath and so on? Um, is that still right mindfulness, or is that just a step along the way to it? Uh, that's still right mindfulness. It's that's uh, uh, not wrong. It's not the practices that the Buddha suggested for the cultivation of right mindfulness with regards to the body. The only one of them that's really difficult to to practice nowadays is to observe the stages of decomposition of the human body. But you know. Nowadays, you only have to watch CSI to get that accomplished. <laughs> the most important thing, uh, you're doing the practice of uh, uh, right mindfulness as mindfulness of the body as an aggregate. When you're doing the walking meditation in the way that I uh, described it to you, mindfully aware of the sensations and all of the five senses, mindfully aware of the body, 
as it is. The body is an aggregate in two senses. If you look at the body in the conventional way, that there is the mind and the body, there's, there's mind and matter as two separate things, and there's the mind and the body, that we see that this body is just, you know, it's, it's just dust, from dust and to dust. It's an aggregate of parts. It's made up of, of the, the solid and the liquid and the heat and the movement you know, the solidity and the fluidity and, and, and heat and, and motion uh, are the elements of the body. And that the body consists of all these different parts and organs, blood vessels and heart, liver, spleen, stomach, brain, so on and so forth. They're just all parts that have come together. That from, from the uh, parent's sperm and egg that uh, and the... Uh, there is the assimilation of matter and the growth of the body, and this body then is fed all kinds of food and grows, but that's all it is, that air comes in and air goes out, fluids come in, fluids go out, solids come in, solids come out, and that which makes up the body is nothing but parts. So that part of understanding the body as an aggregate is fairly straightforward and easily arrived at. The other part is how do you know you have a body in the first place? Through sensations. I mean, if you couldn't see your body, feel your body, smell, touch, you wouldn't know you had a body. But then, on the other hand, what do you know of any physical reality, not just your body? All you know is that which is provided by your five senses. What do you really know is only the sensations. Your body is an aggregate of sensations. When you sit here and you settle yourself into awareness of your body, what you're being aware of are all the different sensations that make it up. Your body is Ultimately, from an experiential point of view, a collection of sensations, an aggregate of sensations, of changing sensations, constantly. So, you are practicing right mindfulness, the body is an aggregate, when you are being mindfulness, mindful of sensations of the body. And from that mindfulness will come that understanding of the, the deeper understanding, the insight will come, the insight into impermanence and the insight into the emptiness of all of these things that we regard as the material world, the physical world. They are empty of any reality of being the way we perceive them to be because our perception, 100% of our perceptions are concoctions of our mind to explain our sensations. Nothing more, nothing less. And so your practice will lead you to understand that very, very clearly, and that's the mindfulness of the body and the body. Other questions? You let the understanding unfold. You do the practice and you just keep observing I tell you these things and they're, they're pointers. They give you an idea of what to notice when, when it comes up. 
about the important thing is your own discovery of these things is true. Absolutely nothing that the Buddha taught and nothing of the Buddha's teachings that I pass on to you is to be accepted because it's been told to you. It's to be, it's to be tested and explored and discovered uh, and demonstrated for yourself to satisfy yourself that it's true. And then in satisfying yourself of its truth and going beyond doubt, then, uh, then you will achieve the necessary insights. Any other questions? Yes? No. Okay. Well, good. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. Okay. So what I would uh, like to do, I, I did uh, naturally talk longer than uh, was scheduled to. It's 8.28. So if you'd like to, if you need to stretch or, or go to the washroom, uh, we'll take a five-minute break, and then uh, we'll we'll sit until we'll sit together until nine o'clock. Okay.